Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that as we come to remember you, as we as we come to remember you accurately and properly and powerfully, I ask you to help me as I speak and help people as they listen. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Good morning, everyone. I want to come through now to the last... Um, we'll do two more sessions in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 11. Today I'm going to go through verses 17 to 26, pretty much um, having come through to verse 16 last week. I was going to do all of this in one session, but actually um, we may not get through even that today. I feel like there's at least a couple of a couple more sessions. So um, there's no rush, thankfully. I entitled this today, When Gathering Together is Worse Than Not. When Gathering Together is worse than not. I'm going to explain that in a moment. Please don't stop listening. Um, I want to pose the question today very strongly for us all to consider the last 18 months of church and world history from the perspective of false assumption. And I'll explain that in more context when we come to the text in just a minute or two. But let me say it again, to consider the last 18 months of church and world history, and I've put that in that order, church history and world history, they're two different things, and yet they relate intimately. Considering the last 18 months of that from the perspective or with the thought in mind of false assumption. Um, I wrote at the end of Body Zero, the book that I wrote a couple of years ago almost, no, it is just over two years ago, um, about the sunk cost fallacy. If you're not sure what the sunk cost fallacy is, just Google that and, and find out. I'll read an excerpt from from my book, and I've not done that before, I don't think, in this teaching series. This is the 34th, and this is the first time I felt a sense of needing to read something that I'd written, um, as I say, a number of years ago, um, just two short years ago, but wow, what, what a period of time in church and world history. So I'm going to read that, so, so stick with me through to the end. Just quickly regarding last week, I want to just say a couple of things about the Shakespeare analogy to Hamlet. I am wanting to pick that back up and do something from 2 Corinthians 5, so look out for that um, if you're if you're that way inclined with regards to liter literature and so on. I don't know if some of you find that helpful, but the soliloquy that I quoted last week, I should have said for those of you who didn't really understand that, it was really um, Hamlet's struggle with a desire to essentially end his life that was uh, to be or not to be that's what he was um, wrestling with and 2 Corinthians 5 has a similar kind of wrestle as indeed as Philippians 1 and other parts of through Paul's writing so there's some work to be done there and I'm looking forward to digging into that there isn't enough time at the minute to to do everything and on that point we are looking for um, some support for this podcast um, hundreds and hundreds of people listen to this every single week and a bit disappointed that no one's coming back in touch with us yet. I think that's something hard to accept, that it's maybe just a reflection of the church. Oftentimes, a lot of people will listen and download and consume and so on. But then, you know, I'm just being honest, no one no one gets in touch. And it's hard to understand that. It, I would understand it more if no one listened. Um, but anyway, we're looking to raise some support to help us with our limited time to free us up from some other things so that we'd be able to attend to some of these things that we feel increasingly are 
urgently important. So if that may be you, um, by the way, please get in touch if you'd like to support us without finances. Maybe you can't do that and you feel a bit awkward or whatever. We're looking equally for there to be a sense of um, support for what we're doing in terms of prayer and relationship. We're wanting to create some space to do that. So please don't feel um, that it's only money. And I know that sounds cliche to say that, but it's all I can say and to assure you is that it's genuinely the case. So I'll put the, the, the link for our Patreon page uh, in the show notes. The other thing I want to say just finally from last week is to acknowledge that I fully appreciate that there wasn't there wasn't much time talking about the interdependence of men and women. Um, that was an emphasis of Paul's passage there that we dealt with and because of of the difficulty in getting to the the nitty-gritty of the main thing to do with essentially egalitarianism complementarianism and so on that I didn't give much much more could be all I'm saying is much more could be said about that beautiful independence of men and women husband and wife um, so it's not because I don't value that or because I'm not very conscious of it and in an ongoing way but it was just again lack of time so Let's go to the the text today, verses 17 through to 26. Um, And I want to say as we read it now together, this and this is why I prayed at the beginning, that this might be difficult for some of you to hear. Okay, I'm acknowledging that now. Um, It's going to be harder for some of you to hear more than others. Um, But to say this, that what, what we're doing, and we should know this as we come to this chapter, is that we're focusing and remembering Jesus' death, aren't we? Proclaiming his death until he comes. And his death was torturous. Even death, becoming obedient even to death, even death on a cross. You know, there's one thing to die, there's another thing to be killed in the way that Jesus was, in ignominy and dishonor and um, immense, difficult to imagine type of pain. You know, he, he Isaiah said that he was marred beyond human likeness. Um, do we... So as we come to what I'm saying is as we come to remember him today, this this is a we're we're remembering his death, you know, and that's not pleasant. It's not supposed to be pleasant, but it is supposed to be powerful. So please try and bear with me as I go through this, even though it will be difficult for some of you more than others. Today's text, then let's read verses 11 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Seemed like a good place to stop there this week. Next week, we'll carry on and uh, go through to maybe the end of verse 34, the end of the chapter. Um, so let's go through this, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come, come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This is one of two staggering, staggering comments, staggering verses. How many times can I say staggering? Because it warrants it in this passage, okay? One of two staggering statements that, in a sense, you know, we could fill, I could fill a whole session today on just these, or even just this one statement. Um, Paul has said previously at the beginning that he he did commend the Corinthians, and I acknowledged this last week, that he did commend them from for the from the the way that the oral traditions seem to be being faithfully acknowledged and um in verse two where Paul did that last where Paul where well, I said that last week, but then he comes here, but here's this but but in the following instructions I do not commend you. And then look what he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, if this isn't an indication of the seriousness of, I mean, I know we've taken 33 sessions so far, and there'll be at least another however many to get to the end of the book. But no, this is one letter that would have been read out probably in an hour or so. And, you know, if this isn't an indication of the seriousness of what was going on, if the, if chapter five didn't land with you, with us as we consider the sexual immorality and the fact that these Corinthians were boasting in that and not dealing with it. If that doesn't, this should, there are, there are two statements in this chapter that should sober and stop each of us in our tracks. And this is the first of, of the two, that when you come together, church in Corinth, it is not for the better, but for the worse. It's worse when you come together. In, in effect, what he's saying is it's it's, Gathering is worse than remaining apart. At the end of the session today, I'm going to clarify very clearly what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? Because some, again, this may be for some of you harder to hear and you may hear me saying things that I'm not saying or you may wonder what I'm saying. I'm going to be very clear at the end of this. But Paul is saying here, and this is the this is the scripture, don't shoot the messenger, okay? He's saying to the Corinthians that it's more damaging, it's worse, it's preferable to remain apart than to gather. That's what he's saying. And we're about to find out why that is and the extent to which this is serious through the practice of the Corinthian, the so-called Corinthian believers. So first of a couple of important questions for us all today, okay? Have you, are you, and will you consider the last 18 months of church world history from the perspective of false assumptions? I mentioned that a few minutes ago, this whole thing of false assumption. And we'll all agree, I think, that we're living in critical times and we have lived through in one sense and are still living through critical times, unusual times, perplexing times, distressing, depressing, anxiety rising times. And yet there is this flip side of the coin, which is that it's so, so encouraging to see the night getting closer, the, the night drawing in, you know, and righteousness um, is it's just a. It's just a. It's just beyond that, you know. It says that old adage of you know the darkest. The night is darkest just before it gets dawn, just before the light breaks. So, have you? Are you? And will you consider the last eighteen months of church and world history from the perspective of false assumption? Let me let me just explain that from this verse, verse seventeen, because when. Um, 
it was evident that there was a false assumption at work here in this church, wasn't it? And Paul had to correct that. He's he's not commending their practices here because he says when you come together, it's not for for the better, but for the worse. So there was this false assumption that in that it was better for them to gather when they came together. That it was better than if they didn't do that. That's an example of of um, a false assumption and links to this thing that I've mentioned about the sunk cost fallacy. In other words, that we've invested so much in this thing, time, money, resources, whatever, that because of that, we just need to keep on going, irrespective of what the result of all of that investment is. That we've invested so much that the thought, the thought for us of stopping something and accepting that something's not working or is, isn't healthy or isn't producing or resulting in what we had hoped it would or that we feel deeply down in our hearts that it should that that's a greater force on our hearts than accepting that pausing reflecting in our christian context praying seeking the lord in in repentance and prayer and tears and that being the priority that the, the sunk cost fallacy is that they're the just carrying on because of the thought of that is is greater than actually our preparedness to accept um in a sense, accept defeat, you know, strategically quitting and all that. You know, that, that this is what Paul is getting at here. That the, the Corinthians' false assumption was that they continued to meet as they were. And he's saying, no, that's doing more harm than good. And so for us today to apply that directly into our world today, are we, are we able to pause? This was the message from the draft film, okay, and that we felt was such an encouragement that – we had been faithful to what he'd given us to say, and that's why we're continuing to, that, you know, can we consider the last 18 months of as, as largely being the church's wasted opportunity to forsake false assumptions, this false assumption that coming continuing to come together, business as usual, has to be better, doesn't it? It has to be better. And, you know, we see we see this, or I, I say we, I see this, Mary and I see this clearly, I know others of you do as well, that, you know, that, that this is part of the frustration with the church at the minute in this particular juncture, which isn't an overnight juncture, of course, it's a season of, of transition and change, and I'll touch on that again in, at the end. Um, but the likes of Christian Concern, who are so admirable, respect, you know, they're, they do amazing things, amazing work, and yet they also facilitate... Um, campaigns of calling the government to account for churches being closed. It just seems so short-sighted. Um, and then they produce videos, you know, and it, I find it nauseating. I'll be honest, I find it, and I, I feel angry when I see conserv- particularly conservative evangelical church leaders up and down the, the country, and they're speaking to the camera, you know, do a talking headpiece and they're saying, you know, this is a disgrace that the church is, this is the time that the church needs to be open more than ever. And um, it's nauseating because within, within this railing against the church closures, it's all very well to, to, for, to acknowledge the discrimination that's undoubtedly, you know, that will undoubtedly be in the mix towards the, the, the churches and to, to Christians, but the church, the, the, the Christians, the church isn't faithful enough. It doesn't deserve to be persecuted properly. And so it's nauseating because within within the complaint and you know whinging about churches being closed, there is no sense in which these conservative evangelical leaders or from other denominational expressions have been sobered to stop and to listen and to think differently and to prioritize 
repentance and prayer as opposed to just carrying back on because somehow we're we're essential key workers and this is the time the church needs to be open. Well, let me tell you something. If people need God and they do need God, but they're not going to find God faithfully in the church, they don't need the churches to be open. And this is the point. This is the point, right? If the churches being open is doing more harm than good, if gathering together in the way that we always have is doing more harm than good to ourselves and to people that don't know God, then what are we doing when we're complaining about the churches being closed by the government who have got no spiritual sight or understanding whatsoever what's going on well we're actually resisting what the lord wants to do aren't we we're resisting we're operating we're perpetually operating from this false assumption that unless the churches are physically open these church buildings that so often are a blessing in different ways for sure but that fundamentally if they're not open and we're not gathering people are unfaithful and we we can't function as the essential workers that we are This is what was going on here in these verses and why it's so relevant for us today. The reality is that the Corinthians were worse off for gathering, and that is a sobering thought that we would all do well to reflect on at length because of their attitudes that we're going to see in a minute, specifically regarding the Lord's Supper. Um, the, the, The staggering thought is that this was doing more harm than good and that they weren't communing with him with the Lord, the resurrected Lord of glory, because he wasn't communing with them. Now, to what extent is that true of the Corinthians? In one sense, they were being commended as being faithful, and in another sense, they weren't. So this isn't a shepherd abandoning his flock. But there is such a thing as Ichabod. There is such a thing as glory departed or the sense of the Lord withdrawing when he is grieved or displeased. And remember that this church was boasting about sexual immorality and that of a kind that wasn't even found among pagans. Just remind yourselves of some of these things. Again, this would have been a letter read out loud. And so we'll come shortly to the second staggering statement in this passage. The first one is is that they were doing more harm than good by gathering. Verses 18 to 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, so Paul's in effect, he's saying, right, for for, for starters, guys, for starters, I'm not going to commend you. And this is why, for starters, you've got a lot to say. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe that and I believe that in part, verse 19, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Let's just take these two verses one by one. So divisions, there's two key words here, okay? Divisions in verse 18 and then factions in verse 19. I want to shed a little bit of light on that for us all. Um, I want to say, first of all, that at the beginning of this letter, Paul makes a point, and I've alluded to this verse, I've alluded to this verse a number of times months ago. Verse verse 19 has been critically important for us, again, at this current ch- juncture of church and world history, that he, 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 he basically spoke against the divisions in the church, particularly the kinds of divisions that were on the grounds of personality, you know, following Apollos and following, following other leaders and... You know, the divisions being based on silly, stupid, ridiculous, infantile, immature things like that. But but now, Paul, he concedes the vital importance of divisions. This is why this verse blows out of the water some of these 
obsessions with so-called unity and so on. Um, for in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And then he flows into verse 19. For there must, he acknowledges that he can, it's like a concession, isn't it? He concedes. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, depending on what translation you're reading, that word factions in verse 19, which is divi- different to divisions, um, verse verse 19, that word factions, um, the, the, that actual word is, is heresies. This is sobering and this is, I want to create plenty of space for you, for us all today to consider what was going on here. Paul is saying, he's conceding that actually that there was a need for these divisions because, not for any old reason, but because there must be factions or heresies among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. If you if you read this verse in the King James Version, you'll see it's, it's rendered heresies. But it's worth it is worth doing a little word search for the Greek on this word because it pops up. It's not a common word, and it pops up a few times. Just just let less than maybe five or six times. And one of those occasions is is in two Peter two. Okay, and this is where I'm going to read from now. If you want to just turn there, go ahead. But I want to. This is why studying is important. Okay, the NIV renders this very weakly, in my opinion. The NIV will read, will talk about differences. And if you're reading the NIV, you'll probably see that. Where in verse 19, for there must be differences among you, in order that those who are genuine. There's no doubt that differences are good and impossible. To, we don't want to. Um, rid ourselves of differences. We don't want to become clones or wearing the same clothes or eating the same food or talking in the same way or reading the same books or enjoying the same films. We're not supposed to be clones. We're not talking about differences in that sense that are beautiful and part of the, the tapestry and fabric of life. We're talking about heresy. We're talking about um, the difference between people who are in right standing with God and people who are not. And Paul says here in verse 19, for there must be these factions or heresies among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We're not talking about the the differences, NIV. We're talking about heresy, factions, divisions, right standing with God or not, genuineness or counterfeit. That's what we're talking about. And so this word in verse 19 pops up again in 2 Peter 2. Verses 1 to 3, I'm just going to read it for you now. This whole chapter is stunning. But just going to, for, for time. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Okay, there's that word from, from verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 11. Let me start again. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There's that word again, destructive heresies and swift destruction. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. 
and that that whole thing of in their greed is actually what was going on here with Corinth. We'll see that in more detail just in a moment about the, the the selfishness, the selfish greed of the Corinthians as they thought that they were having the Lord's Supper, as they thought they were gathering and and, and therefore doing good. And actually it was the complete opposite. It, they, were, they were falsely assuming, doing everything on false assumptions. So the, so the second question for us today, I've asked the first question, which is, have you, have you, are you, or will you consider the last 18 months of church and world history from the perspective of false assumptions? That's even a possibility, guys. Is it possible that we've got a whole bunch of false assumptions going on? Yes, we have, in my opinion. So question two, what happens when the genuine in church are not recognised? That's what we've just read in verse 19. Paul, Paul's concession for these divisions is for a specific reason and that that was in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what he's saying is what happens when heresy or specifically, as we've just seen in 2 Peter 2, as that word is used there, is not recognized. What happens when the genuine in church are not recognized? And, and conversely, what, what happens when heresy is not recognised. Peter was under no illusions. He's he's not mixing his words, is he? Um, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So at what point, when we're being told by the Apostle Peter and by Paul, at what point can we stop and ask ourselves the question, is this just a matter of, you know, as the NIV would say, a difference, something that we should just be appreciative of, grateful for even, celebrate and boast about? Or is it something that we should actually be distressed about and willing to confront head on? So this is our second question. What happens when the genuine in church are not recognised? Those who are genuinely in right standing with God, those who are genuinely speaking truth, those who are genuinely prophetic, and those who just may seem to be what happens when heresy, what happens when false teaching is not recognized? Now, we are thinking about a specific congregation here, but I want us to think about this not only from our own context. So whatever local gathering you're in, whether you're under a sound teacher or not, I don't know. There will be, a, but there will be both. In people listening to this, there will be both. So it's, it's thinking about our individual congregations, but also thinking about the church as a whole. Think about these household names that have crept in, in amongst the, the general landscape or fabric of the church, household names that we, I think, falsely assume are safe, bona fide, secure, you know, um, to be relied on beyond reproach because of X, Y, and Z. Maybe X, Y, and Z is size of their church in whatever country they're from, typically America, um, rubber stamped because they've got large congregations and albums and so on. This was the focus of our film Calling Yeshua. And if you've not seen it, you know, I've, I've spoken to a friend of mine recently and I don't, you know, he's a friend and we've been talking, you know, and, um, you know, the sense in which my friend had understood the film and the narrative in the film, but they hadn't understood the narrative of the film because this isn't just about one or two false teachers or one or two questionable uh, doctrines in the church. This is to do with the general landscape of the church that these two individuals represent. So it is to do with our individual contexts, our homes, which church we take our families to every week. 
which which relational circles, which theologies we believe is being sound, what's the basis for our theological quote-unquote convictions, but it's also to do with the whole. And this is where we go so wrong when we decide, well, my church experience hasn't been like that, Franks. Therefore, what's the problem? Why would I have any issues if my church experience isn't unfaithful, if we don't have bad teaching in our church? Well, this is this is the blinkered, myopic um, tendencies of the church to view the whole based purely and only on our individual experiences. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to everybody who that everybody is an unfaithful context, everybody isn't getting solid biblical teaching, that discipleship is faulty everywhere. Of course, that is not true. But I remember vividly the day that someone said to me, um, it was at the, the terrible event as it, as it happened to be. It was just, it was a, neg- a very negative, um, it's, it is a negative memory for me. Uh, when I look, launched Body Zero publicly and it was supposed to be a prayer event and it just attended, ended up being a, just not the kind of prayer gathering that I was wanting it to be. But anyway, there was one thing that came out of that that actually prov- that, 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 uh, catalyzed this podcast into the prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church. And it was at the end when we were, I was taking some questions and um, one person said to me, they said, well, Nick... Um, we we can't all leave the church, can we? Because it would be chaos. And I will never forget that question because it became critical for me in being able to confidently say to people, if you honestly, it's a false, here we are, this is a false assumption. The false assumption was that from this person would be that if we all left the church, if we all left our context, if we all left our understanding of what the church is and all the things that we keep on saying are good and that are profitable and they actually aren't helpful for anything because no one's getting saved, no one's growing up into, you know, obviously not purely no one, some people are getting saved. But this false assumption that it would be chaotic if we all decided to stop and prioritise other things... And it would be chaos if we all did. That was a false assumption. Because, why? Because it's chaos anyway. We are in chaos. We don't all need to leave our respective gatherings in order for chaos to result. It is chaos anyway. Isn't it? You have a a resumption after lockdown into your little relational gatherings where you might have some good teaching. You might have some good teaching. You might have some, you know, faithful Christian social witness. It doesn't mean to say that that chaos doesn't exist, does it? It's a false assumption to say we can't all leave. And I'm not, again, this is why I'm going to clarify at the end of this session today what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Um... So this thing of what happens when the genuine in the church in Corinth weren't recognized, Paul recognizes this needs to happen because in a sense, imagine God's highlighter pen, you know, the highlighting, the recognizing of those who are genuinely in relationship and those who are not. Today's average Sunday morning experience, are you better off for gathering or not? These are important questions and they're hard. We're, We're remembering Jesus' death today on a cross. So some of these questions are going to be hard. It's hard to to think of Jesus being tortured, 
mocked, rejected. It's hard to think about Jesus becoming sin, separated from the Father. So let's ask ourselves some honest questions this morning. Are you better off? Is your family better off for gathering as you have been for however many years or not? What part may false assumptions be playing in your thinking, i.e. the false assumption that gathering for the Corinthians was better or that regarding COVID that it's essential, like the, the Christian concern videos of these church leaders. It's essential, guys. Government, don't you know this is essential? Who's it essential for? The lost, the poor, the hurting, or ourselves? How many people haven't got saved during lockdown when the churches were closed who would have done had the churches been opened? I would argue very few. Please stay with me. Please stay with me. So why might we be worse off today gathering as we are who haven't when we haven't stopped to to even review or reflect our common practices, the traditions, you know. Um, Why might we be worse off for gathering today? Well, let me just go through these quickly, and uh, for the sake of time, I'll have to rattle through them. But there are six or seven things, I think, um, reasons why we might be worse off for gathering as we are. I'm not arguing against gathering. I'll clarify that later. So six or seven things. Um, false unity. Okay, this I think false unity is common. I think um, when everyone comes together and it's not clear who are in right standing with God, truth isn't distinct from those who are spouting lies and doctrinal errors and um, so on. So false unity. And we, we seem to forsake so much for that. At all costs, preserve the so-called unity of the faith, etc. And... God isn't doing that. God, Jesus wasn't like that. This is why we need to remember we're remembering Jesus' death. We're remembering who he is. And Jesus didn't operate like that. He called a spade a spade. He was in profoundly tender, lowly and gentle in heart, but he was also, uh, he didn't shirk hard decisions. So false unity, false relationships linked to that. People who are Sunday friends only or certainly who wouldn't die for you, the poverty of, of Christian relationships generally and how, how they're supposed to be a signpost for an unsaved world and, and often they're not. A false gospel, partial gospel of love only. You know, this is linked to poor teaching, biblical illiteracy. Um, half a gospel is no gospel at all. God is just God. God is a God of love. There is no sense in our gatherings often of the fear of him of the fact that he is pure and holy, that he will judge the living and the dead and that there will be a need for each of us individually to give account before him. This is false gospel of prosperity and health and wealth and what, what does blessing really mean and so on and so forth. So false unity, false relationships, false gospel. And get this, false assurance that we're all in the will of God because we head to a building on a Sunday morning at 10.30 and that somehow there's this placating of our consciences because we've gone to church and done the right thing. I think it does give false assurance. False discipleship. What are, what are we bringing people to when they get saved? If they get saved, what happens if the friend that you've been speaking to about Jesus does get saved? Are you going to bring them to your church? Are you going to bring them in to get quality biblical teaching that sets their hearts on fire and gives them fire in their bones and sends them off to be evangelists and disciple makers themselves? Or are they going to come in and hear a, 
hodgepodge of biblical illiteracy where it's not clear who Jesus is or who the people of God are. False mission. People generally aren't getting saved. And if they are, what are they becoming? I often think of the back row of the Elim church we used to go to, the back row of the church where there was about 10 people, 10 young people. And I used to often look at them and just think, "What, Lord, what hope do these young people in their, in their early teenage years, what hope do they have where pastors take the view that love is anything that isn't um, endorsing and agreeing and whatever is harsh and unloving or that paying attention to theological detail is just extraneous waffle and doesn't need it's just it's religious legalism you know what hope do young people have who are being raised in a so-called christian spiritual environment that handles the bible like that that doesn't that doesn't show them who jesus really is it doesn't get them to remember who jesus really was on earth and I think this is my final point, okay, coming to this this thought of what happens today. In our average Sunday morning experiences, are we better off for gathering or not? We have what might be, why might be wor- we be worse off? And I think ultimately it's this number, the seventh point here, false remembrance, false unity, false relationships, gospel assurance, discipleship, false mission, false remembrance, remembering Jesus in the wrong way. You know, it's it's wrong to remember Jesus in just a melancholy way. If if it makes us sad and depressed, we're not remembering Jesus as we should. We're not remembering his death as we should. If it be, if it makes us become liberal, you know, it, we're remembering him in the wrong way. We need to remember Jesus as he truly was, as he truly is, and as he will truly be again when he comes. What's the very last verse of our passage today? In verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. (laughs) We do it until we die or he comes, but we also have firmly in view the fact that he is coming. So question, are we willing to entertain this thought about false assumption as we view the world and the church today? What happens when the genuine church, the genuine in the church in Corinth and for us aren't recognized, when heresy isn't recognized or even acknowledged or the potential for that isn't even, even, we can't even talk about that without us having a bad attitude or we need to say something in a certain way for it to be, for people to listen And we come to an answer that is difficult to hear, but this is why we take communion. When there is, and this is my answer to these questions, okay, when when there is no spiritual discernment, no distinction between truth and folly, no spiritual authority, forget positions, forget Bible college degrees, forget, I'm talking about genuine spiritual authority where the back row of a bunch of young teenagers would sit up, maybe would weep, because the person leading the church has spiritual authority and they're, they're conducting things in such a way as to allow the spirit of God to genuinely move. And no difference between right and wrong. We end up with fake church and God made in our image. Hence, the, you know, I said about the two staggering statements. The first one was that they did more harm than good by coming together. This is the second one. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
Wow. This passage is telling us that it was doing more harm than good for the Corinthians as they met, and that when they had when they did come together, it wasn't the Lord's Supper that they were eating. How much is not what we think or say it is? These guys thought they were having the Lord's Supper. Or the gathering is the church. Is this not just profound spiritual blindness? And of course, yes, it is. This is um, profound. I want to take us to John, flick over to John, John 6, if you would. Thank you for your patience. Thinking of our third and final question this morning, in remembrance of him, what are we remembering exactly? How, how, are, how well are we seeing? How well are we remembering him? How accurately, how faithful is our remembrance of him? I want to just take us to a passage which will take a few minutes to read, but this is so critically important. Okay, I'm, that's why I'm trying to move quickly. Um, the spiritual blindness through the Gospel of John generally is seen is seen probably most in this cha- chapter, chapter 6 of John. A few other places as well, but... Um, let me just read it to you, okay? Thinking of this issue with the Corinthian spiritual blindness, that they would be gathering together thinking it was doing more good than harm, and it wasn't, it was the opposite, and that equally they weren't taking the Lord's Supper at all, even though they thought they were. This is profound spiritual blindness, uh, faulty Christian leadership, and so on. Let me read these words from verse 48 of John 6 through to the end, 71. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And notice this in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, verse 52 there had said to us, the Jews disputed among themselves. And then it, verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue. So Jesus was, was in a synagogue in a Jewish place. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, hello, his so-called disciples, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling, Jesus knows. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples, his disciples were grumbling about this. He said to them, do you take offence at this? And this is really critical. 
And Jesus said, then, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Notice that Judas also features uh, anonymously in our passage today. Verse 65 of John 6, and and Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Those who were in Paul's thinking about those who are in right standing with God and those who are not, and yet they were all together. They were all regarded as disciples. They all looked like they were followers of Jesus. And yet verse 66 of John 6 here, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We need a higher vision of remembrance, guys. Everybody listening, thank you for your grace and patience listening to me talk about these hard-to-hear things but we need a higher vision of the remembrance of Jesus. When we come to the bread and wine, whether you do that, I hope that you do that, we'll be doing that. We need a higher vision of remembrance. We need a a greater remembrance of who Jesus was, who he is, and who he will be when he comes again. When we think of Jesus coming, we say that we believe in Jesus coming, but we can't envisage him radically altering how we understand church. Is, is that not what we're saying when we refuse to stop business as usual? When this same treadmill of, of thinking and practicing and speaking, acting as though everything's fine, acting as though we're just all buoyant and happy and excited because we've got some new initiatives and because we've relaunched and because we can sing without face masks again. And we say that we believe Jesus is coming as a, as a core tenet of of who, who we are as, as disciples, but, but we can't envisage him radically altering how we understand church or conservative evangelicals who believe in the virgin birth, but they can't conceive of miracles today. What? Look at what Jesus says in verse 61 of John 6. But do you take offense at this? He knew that they would, the, the disciples were grumbling. So what was Jesus' answer to that? Verse 62, and this is a key. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to when he was before? When you think of the church today being radically altered, prepared, that's a faithful word, Luke chapter 3, prepared for his coming, whether in our lifetime or not, we think that's too hard to conceive. If it's too much of a, if it's too much for our minds to conceive or our hearts to entertain, what is, I think Jesus would say to us, then, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if, then what if you were to see Jesus? What, what if you were to see me, Jesus says, in the sky, ascending to where he was before or returning 
as he said. Yes, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. All the Pharisees ripped their garments and threw dust up in the air and wailed because of the blasphemy. Talk about a final nail in Jesus' coffin. We need a higher vision of remembrance. We need a higher, clearer, more accurate, faithful vision of Jesus. We say we believe in Jesus. We we say we believe in his coming, but we can't envisage him radically altering how we understand the church with all our smorgasbord of denominations. God help us to see and remember Jesus faithfully. What am I not saying? What am I saying? I promised you clarity on that. I'm going to say this very quickly and then I'll read from the excerpt and then pray. What am I not saying? I'm not saying that we should all isolate and be lonely and vulnerable. Of course I'm not. I'm not saying that we should all reject spiritual authority or covering. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ever gather. And I'm not saying we should just adopt a bunker mentality and hunker down into some kind of defeatist mentality. I'm not saying any of that, guys. What I am saying is that we have to accept that something very wrong is going on within the common understanding of of the church or what it means to be the church. I, I am saying that we urgently need to have clarity across the fault lines of denominations as to what is biblically true and that which is not. Verse 19, to show, to, for people to recognize who are in right standing with God and who are not. The context there is heresy. We urgently need clarity. With the greatest of respect, Gavin Ashenden converting to Catholicism, believing in uh, apparitions of Mary, believing in the power of rosary beads is not acceptable doctrine. We need to stop tolerating agreeing to disagree and false unity. We need to accept that God is calling his people out of compromise. We need to accept that we won't have genuine unity until we repent. We need humility to accept that we are lost and we need his help. We ultimately need faith to remember the earth-shattering, disruptive Jesus as he was, as he is today and as he will be when he comes again. Luke 18, verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I'm just going to read you this excerpt and then pray. If you've not read my book, feel free to contact us. Please don't let money be a concern or an issue. If you haven't got any money or whatever, we'll gladly send you one. I'm just going to read you uh, from the very end of the book, page 210 if you've got a copy you can join me um, bottom of page 210 Uh, and this is the chapter entitled Jesus Come is chapter 10 final chapter Jesus is orchestrating a division between those who are his and those who are not this is written in January 2019 Jesus is orchestrating a division between those who are his and those who are not. Let me explain. Currently, the body of Christ are far from being in a position to prepare the world for the return of Christ. The church is simply not in anything like the place of unity and boldness and purity that will be required to prepare even ourselves for this. Repentance must spread throughout the body of Christ like the Californian wildfires of 2018 for this to happen. When the church are then finally prepared on their knees through joyous tears. 
to be in a position to prepare the world, a focus will increasingly spread throughout the global body of Christ that has never been seen before, a besotted fixation with Jesus' second coming. Then the world itself will be gloriously prepared for his coming. It stands to reason, does it not, that the world cannot be prepared for the second coming unless the body of Christ are prepared for the second coming. We must be prepared in order that we can then prepare The body of Christ are currently being prepared to eventually become a lighthouse church, a people prepared. Check out Luke 3. Into the third decade of the 21st century, just over two days of God's time since Jesus ascended in the clouds in Israel, this is going to increasingly involve painful separation from all that we've ever known to be called the church. A church is being prepared of such radical dissimilarity with previous points of reference that it will be as unrecognisably strange to us as Jesus' battered body was in a Jewish tomb. What does a Jesus-come community of radical messianic eschatology look like? People who are prepared to prepare the world for Jesus' return. What are they, what's that going to look like? Are you part of a community like this now or not? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. Is It doesn't look like a, the Jesus-come app that we produced a year or so back and it, it basically failed. It doesn't look like people trying to relate to each other online or on an app where they're not really committed to or understanding the need of each other. It doesn't look like that. Are you part of a community like this now or not? I don't think you are. We're not. We're not part of a community like this because there isn't a community like that around us yet. Maybe we'll plant something, God willing, follow his leading. Maybe that will happen. I don't know. But again, I think it's a false assumption that we're being rushed into that. I think he wants us to take stock. I think he wants us to learn and understand and grow in wisdom and learn from mistakes and learn from the last however many decades of centuries of church history. So if not, are you going to continue to stay stay where you are? That's the question. To answer these questions, I'd like to ask you a series of seven other questions relating to your current experience of, quote, going to church. Firstly, do you experience the joy of genuine family relationships as you see modelled in the Bible? Or are you more aware of the arm's length dynamic of, quote, Sunday syndrome? Number two, are you involved in an active spiritual role of service? In your church, or do you feel more like a passive spectator at a weekly event? Three, does your church include an emphasis of taking Jesus to people rather than only inviting people to church? Number four, does your church focus more on expository teaching through the entire Bible or topical teaching supported by isolated and often out of context verses? Five, are you being mentored by a more mature believer in your church? Are you mentoring someone less mature than yourself? Number six, does your church feel more like a production filled with predictable programs and schedules or an organic gathering led by the Holy Spirit? And finally, are you experiencing significant growth in your spiritual maturity and in your understanding of God's word because of your attendance at your church? Mary and I have lived in Edinburgh for almost seven years now. If you've never been to the capital of Scotland, you should come. It sh- you should be. It's an amazing, just skipping on. In many ways, Mary and I feel at home here in Edinburgh and have loved living in a city such as this. But despite boasting over 300 churches, Edinburgh has failed to become a spiritual home for us. 
I've shared a little from our journey, uh, journey earlier in the book, but suffice to say here, it has become increasingly clear to us that God has been preparing us for something way more radical than just switching churches. A preparation that was in the very soil of our lives when they converged back in 2012 and when the seeds of our marriage first took root. Two years into our time in Edinburgh, we made the difficult decision to leave the large charismatic church that we'd been a part of since arriving in 2015. Just skip over the page to the second paragraph of page 213. There were several main and inescapable reasons why we eventually left this church, but there was no way we could have known at that time that they would be the exact same reasons that in another two years of maturing into the future, we we were going to permanently leave the instituted denominational church set up for good. After the first or second blog post had been published in this series, this was another uh, series entitled Ready, um, someone left a comment to express how, quote, gravely concerned they were that we had deliberately removed ourselves from the church with a view of asking some of these pivotal questions and without any particular desire of rushing back to another form. I don't know know for sure who it was, but the comment very much sounded like it was someone that knew Mary and I on a personal level and who was also in some form of Christian leadership local to Edinburgh. I remember quipping at the time in response to the ridiculousness of the comment that if I had been genuinely gravely concerned about the welfare of a couple that I loved, I'd have done way more than leave an anonymous message on a blog. I'd have at least picked up the phone and more likely have driven over to see them in person. This comment, though perhaps sounding innocuous to you as you listen now, was actually majorly symptomatic for us of some of these key areas of irresolvable concern expressed through the seven questions above. This form of spiritual leadership, or certainly the attitude it conveyed, I believe is at the root of many hurt ex-evangelicals drowning in anger and toxicity today. However, radically different to any so-called ex-evangelical, Mary and I, without question, firmly believe that there is no plan B to the Church of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for the world. In light of some of these questions above, how about we... How about we have only ever known church to be for all our lives? This became increasingly clear to us that we were questioning much more than just the individual cultures and practices of individual congregations. Although we were certainly doing that, rather, we were daring enough to ask questions of the very fabric of the instituted church as a whole. We were soon to discover that thousands of other people were doing just the same throughout the UK and had been for at least 15 years. Alan Jameson's book, A Churchless Faith, was a very revealing piece of research into the evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic church scene of the UK, of which we were a part. I'd encourage you to to find it out and read it for yourselves. And finally, opting for the ex-evangelical stance of reducing evangelicalism and church in general, and therefore God, all to abuse and neglect and control would have been like Peter of Bethsaida abandoning Jesus to go off with all those other disciples and find another rabbi offering some other life-giving words of wisdom, but that weren't perhaps quite as radical. We knew that Jesus wasn't the problem, the church was. Father, I just want to thank you for your grace and mercy for each of us. And as I've 
try to steer us through these words to the the bread and the wine i i thank you for your spirit at work in each of us being redeemed and made whole and forgiven and um and lord I, i thank you for the bits of this passage that we didn't come to but as we just think about now that this oral tradition that paul was able to quote you and follow your lead as you'd broken the bread and poured the wine at the last supper and that with your new body now you're able to even by your spirit say to us that in um just reading here in verse 24 23 for i received from the lord what i also delivered to you said paul that the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread maybe if you've got some bread you could take your bread now and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me maybe if you've got some wine or some ribena or juice whatever in the same way jesus also took the cup after supper and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes lord i i pray that as we look at the bread and as we look at the the wine as we approach your throne of grace as we approach remembrance of you in a faithful way I ask you to lead us by your spirit to remember your death to proclaim your death and your life and your resurrection and your return I pray you'd help us to do that faithfully to remember who you who you are what you achieved and the reasons that you were killed i pray lord that you'd help us today for those of us who struggle in more that we all struggle in a way to know what the future holds what the answer is to the chaos what the answer is to the we don't want the same old same old but we also feel being bereft of the way we intuitively feel and believe it should be lord i pray that you would lead reformation i pray that you would do it swiftly do it dramatically i pray that as we approach the, the passing of the queen in years short years ahead lord as the as the uk descends into further antichrist identity that you would within your people increasingly show those who are in right standing with you and those who are not and i pray lord that you would perform miracle and um, the miracle of preparing your people for your return and that there would be salvation from that increasing faithfulness within your church i pray lord for your glory in jesus precious name amen Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Into the Prayer. We trust that it's been a comfort and inspiration as well as perhaps a, a provocation towards the number one goal, which is faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. If you want to get involved with what we're doing, we've got a new way now of trying to encourage that more intentionally. Go ahead to the show notes and check out the link to the Patreon page that we've got up perhaps 
perhaps it would be good for you to get involved in that, not just only for a financial um, contribution, stroke commitment, but also towards developing relationship. We're open to that with people, obviously, within reason. So go ahead, check that out. And until next week, let's continue to pray, Maranatha, above all things. Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs>